welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. Welcome, welcome. Three short cases and one monster for your listening pleasure. But before we get to them, I've got two things. First, the D.C. Circuit held an ITEC U.S. v. Renaud this week, agreeing with most other circuits that there is no jurisdiction in federal court to review a revocation of an I-140 petition. So that's rough. But second, the BIA has surprisingly issued a call for amicus submissions on, quote, whether, and if so, to what extent, Ms. Chavez impacts the jurisdiction of an immigration court where the notice to appear fails to satisfy the statutory requirements under the INA, end quote, cleaned up. Is it a trap? Only time will tell. On to the cases. First up is matter of ORE, published by the BIA. This is a 21-page single-space decision on the Rwandan genocide. Welcome to the show, everyone. Many of you know the story, but horrifically long story short, in 1994, Hutu hardliners took over the Rwandan government after the Rwandan president's plane was shot down. From April to July 1994, the Hutu government of Rwanda and the Hutu Interwamwe civil militia, known as MRND, killed as many as 750,000 Tutsis and sympathetic Hutus in what pretty much everyone recognizes as a genocide. At the same time, and in part because of it, the Rwandan army went to war with the Rwandan Patriotic Front, or RPF, comprised of Tutsis primarily based abroad in neighboring countries. The RPF was ultimately successful under the leadership of Paul Kagame, who ended the genocide and leads Rwanda to this day. And he's not without his critics. Mr. O.R.E. was admitted to the U.S. as a refugee in 1996, requiring that he submit a Form I-590 to the U.S. government. In the form, he said that he fled the genocide for Zaire in 1994, and he listed his daughter as being born there, 
in June of 1994. He said he fled Rwanda because his wife, who was a Tutsi, was threatened by the MRND. In the form, Mr. Oari also answered no to the questions regarding whether he had ever been a member of a political or other organization, and listed his only alias as Roger. Following his admission into the U.S., Mr. Oari applied to adjust to LPR status in December 1997. Apparently, individuals wrote to the State Department accusing Mr. Oari of himself being part of the MRND and participating in the genocide shortly thereafter. And many years later, in 2009, U.S. government officials traveled to Rwanda to investigate. Apparently, during the investigation, numerous individuals identified Mr. Oari as a high-ranking member in the MRND, stated that he went by another name at the time, and that he organized some of the worst massacres during the genocide. Even his ex-wife indicted him. Also, a tribunal in Rwanda known as a Gakaka court eventually held a hearing, took testimony, and produced evidence accusing Mr. Oari of all of this. As some of you may know, the Gakaka courts were used in Rwanda as part of the reconciliation process and to hold individuals accountable for what they did. The Gakaka court sentenced Mr. Oari to 30 years imprisonment in absentia. Then, African Rights, an apparently somewhat credible non-governmental organization, investigated Mr. Oari themselves and came to similar conclusions. So Mr. Oari is in big trouble, and if true, for good reason. USCIS denied Mr. Oari's adjustment of status application on June 5, 2019, some 22 years after he filed it, and initiated removal proceedings, charging him as removable for having gained admission by fraud or willful misrepresentation under INA Section 237A1A vis-à-vis INA Section 212A6CI. And indeed, Mr. Oari conceded that he misrepresented some information on his Form I-590. His residence in 1994 the place of his daughter's birth, and his failure to disclose another name. But he denied all the genocide stuff. And his wife is a Tutsi. DHS submitted expert witness testimony, and Mr. Oari submitted counter-fact witness testimony. The IJ found Mr. Oari removable, and denied his, in the alternative, application to adjust to LPR status and for asylum and related relief based on a finding that Mr. Oari had ordered, incited, assisted, or otherwise participated in genocide, rendering him inadmissible under sections 212A3EII and III of the INA. Although Mr. Oari is now a, quote, outspoken critic, end quote, of the Kagami regime, the IJ also denied Convention Against Torture deferral on the merits. The BIA affirmed, and issued a lot of rulings along the way. It's a 14-page single-space discussion, so I'll do my best to summarize. But it's a short episode this week anyway. First, the BIA rejected Mr. Oari's position that the equitable doctrine of latches barred DHS from initiating removal proceedings where its investigation lasted over 20 years. Remember, Mr. Oari filed his adjustment of status application in 1997. The BIA held that the equitable doctrine did not apply, as it might in, say, criminal or civil court proceedings, because as an administrative body, the BIA lacks authority to grant relief in equity. It is, as the Trump attorneys general so often made known, a creature of regulation. 
The BIA also held that the admission of the evidence mentioned above, even the significant hearsay testimony from Rwanda and after all these years, didn't constitute a due process violation. Although the BIA did state in a footnote that an IJ can, quote, determine that the hearsay nature of testimony impacts its weight, end quote. So I don't hate that, although it is a bit of a double-edged sword because most of the testimony that respondents often rely upon is hearsay. Next, the BIA addressed Mr. Oari's removability for having gained admission through fraud or willful misrepresentation. As I feared, the BIA starts off with a bang, relying in a footnote on its decision in matter of DR, and stating that for fraud or misrepresentation to be material, as the removal provision requires, quote, DHS need only establish that the misrepresentation was capable of influencing an adjudicator, end quote. DHS need not show, as mentioned by justices in the Supreme Court's 1988 decision in Cungus v. United States, that the fraud or misrepresentation was a but-for cause of DHS or USCIS's decision, in this case, to admit Mr. O.R.E. into the United States. And this is because, according to the BIA, only three justices advocated for that but-for standard in Cungus, and the Supreme Court has spoken since in other decisions. So with that lessened materiality standard, the BIA held that Mr. O.R.E., having willfully misrepresented his name, the timing of his departure from Rwanda, the location of his residence during the period that he claimed he fled Rwanda, all of which he conceded, in addition to his membership in the Hutu MRND genocide group, which he denied but which he was deemed not credible on, met the standard. Seems pretty obvious to me that, if true, the admissions and the misrepresentations are probably material, as it would have led an adjudicator to inquire whether he was involved in the genocide. I mean, and for example, contrary to what he put in the I-590, he was present in Rwanda during the entire genocide. The BIA then went farther, however, blanketly stating that, quote, misrepresenting one's identity is material to applications for relief and protection from removal because it impairs an adjudicator's ability to probe past conduct that might be potentially disqualifying or bear on the exercise of discretion, end quote. The BIA also upheld the adverse credibility finding, based largely on Mr. O.R.E.'s admitted misrepresentations on the form in 96, his inability to testify to a clear account of what precisely he was doing during the genocide, and the testimony of many witnesses, albeit from Rwanda. The BIA then upheld the genocide finding, which understandably bars asylum in all relief and protection other than cat deferral. The BIA held that the evidence indicated that the bar applied, which is what's required for the burden to then shift to a respondent applying for relief to show that it does not. With the burdens so shifted, in light of all the evidence and the Gakaka conviction, plus that adverse credibility finding, Mr. O.R.E. didn't have a chance. Having made all those findings, the BIA, very unsurprisingly, held that Mr. O.R.E. did not warrant relief as a matter of discretion either, as he, quote, was directly involved in killing a dozen people and was indirectly involved in the murder of scores of others based solely on their ethnicity with the intent to destroy the ethnic group to which they belonged, end quote. Although, and somewhat astonishingly, the BIA doesn't foreclose the possibility that someone who has committed genocide might warrant relief as a matter of discretion, provided he could, quote, show equities of the highest order, end quote. Understood.
As cat deferral is mandatory no matter how bad a guy is, the BIA considered the IJ's denial of it, but agreed that the record doesn't show that, quote, individuals returning to Rwanda for their trials related to the 1994 genocide are generally subject to torture, end quote. It was a long one, but I always gravitate towards the weird. So just one more thing on equity. For those of you who didn't just take the bar exam, latches is a form of relief and equity potentially applicable when a party moves with a lack of diligence in making a legal claim or moving forward with legal enforcement of a right. Although it's complicated, and I'm certainly no expert, under the right circumstances, federal or state courts can essentially say, you waited too long, party, it's not fair for you to bring your claim now. In the equitable latches section of this decision, the BIA states that it cannot exercise that power here because the BIA has, quote, been granted no authority to preclude that lawful conduct, end quote, on the part of DHS. Maybe so. And while future challenges to DHS's decisions to bring removal proceedings or USCIS's decisions to deny relief presumably cannot travel in equity before the BIA, I read this quote as intentionally inferring that the BIA, whether by statute regulation or federal court case law, does have authority to preclude DHS's unlawful conduct. A boy can dream. And that is matter of O-R-E. Next up is Maze of V. Garland, published by the Seventh Circuit on July 20th, 2021. This is a short case about non-LPR cancellation of removal, and it's first in a trio of short-light cases. Mr. Maze is from Mexico and entered the United States without authorization in 1996. DHS discovered him and initiated removal proceedings in 2012 wherein Mr. Meza conceded removability and requested non-LPR cancellation of removal under INA Section 240AB, alleging that his removal would cause exceptional and extremely unusual hardship to his U.S. citizen children. During removal proceedings, however, he was convicted of a DUI. Later on, he was convicted of other driving offenses. And although he and his wife explained the circumstances of the convictions at the removal hearings, they also conceded that he had used a false social security number to gain employment for over 10 years. The immigration judge ultimately denied cancellation of removal, finding that Mr. Meza lacked the requisite good moral character and that he hadn't established the hardship to his children required of this form of relief. The BIA affirmed, but only on the good moral character finding. Interesting choice. So the Seventh Circuit reviewed only the good moral character finding, as it must, and affirmed. First, the Seventh Circuit explained that even though INA Section 242A2B severely limits its jurisdiction to review non-LPR cancellation of removal denials, courts retain jurisdiction to review the issues here, because Mr. Meza's counsel argued, quote, that the immigration judge and the board committed legal errors by disregarding a statutory requirement, ignoring evidence, and misinterpreting precedent, end quote. Remember it. That's how you turn a factual dispute that the circuit might not be able to review into a legal one. And so reviewing Mr. Meza's good moral character, the Seventh Circuit held that Mr. Meza didn't meet it. 
The non-LPR cancellation of removal statute requires that the applicant have good moral character for the 10 years immediately preceding the final decision on an application. So in Mr. Mays' case from 2008 to 2018. And actually here, the immigration judge committed error by considering pre-2008 evidence in the good moral character analysis. But according to the Seventh Circuit, the BIA caught that error and corrected it, denying solely on the DUI, driving convictions, and the social security card thing that all occurred within the 10-year period. The Seventh Circuit also agreed with Mr. Meza that Attorney General Barr's 2019 decision in matter of Castillo-Perez does not support a finding that, quote, a single drunk driving offense automatically precludes an immigration judge from finding good moral character, end quote. But as the Seventh Circuit recognized, it did create a presumption that two DUIs preclude a good moral character finding, and more to the point, Castillo-Perez does not preclude a bad moral character finding based on one DUI particularly when, as here, it's combined with other bad conduct. The Seventh Circuit rejected the remainder of Mr. Mays' arguments, either as meritless based on the agency's decision, or as issues that it was barred from reviewing jurisdictionally. And that is Mays v. Garland. Moving on, we have Orpinel Robledo v. Garland, published by the Eighth Circuit on July 19, 2021. This is another short case about non-LPR cancellation of removal and due process. Mr. Orpinel Robledo is from Mexico and entered the United States without authorization in 1995 or 1996. DHS discovered him and initiated removal proceedings in 2011, wherein Mr. Orpinel Robledo conceded removability and requested non-LPR cancellation of removal under INA Section 240A-B. Sound familiar? One IJ began the removal proceedings and held hearings, but the ultimate decision in the case was rendered by a different IJ, it appears, after all testimony was taken in the case. That second IJ found Mr. Orpinel Robledo credible, but then held that he had failed to establish that his removal would result in the exceptional and extremely unusual hardship to his U.S. citizen children as the non-LPR cancellation of removal statute requires. The BIA affirmed. Before the BIA and now before the Eighth Circuit, Mr. Orpinel Robledo argued that the immigration courts denied his due process rights by changing judges, and therefore, the IJ's decision should be vacated. Not gonna lie, I appreciate the argument. Mr. Orpinel Robledo argued that the statute requires that, quote, at the conclusion of the proceeding, the immigration judge shall decide whether a non-citizen is removable from the United States, end quote. Mr. Orpinel Robledo argued that use of the word the in conjunction with other parts of the immigration statute requires that the same immigration judge who began proceedings render the ultimate decision. I'd smirk at the argument but for the fact that, as you recall, the Supreme Court in Niz Chavez just made thousands of non-citizens newly eligible for non-LPR cancellation of removal based on a statute's use of the word a, an even smaller word than the. But the Eighth Circuit rejected the claim, holding that read in context, the phrase in the statute relates back to another clause that begins with, quote, an immigration judge, end quote. 
which thereby means that use of the word the, quote, refers to whichever immigration judge is conducting that part of the removal proceedings, end quote. Plus, the second IJ did not act in any way improper. Mr. Orpinel Robledo therefore lost his case. And that is Orpinel Robledo v. Garland. Sticking with the Eighth Circuit, we have Evandano Elvira v. Garland, published on July 21st, 2021. Another very short one from the Eighth Circuit, and another non-LPR cancellation of removal case. So be it. Mr. Avendano Elvira is from Mexico and entered the U.S. unlawfully in 2004. He's married and has two U.S. citizen children and is the, quote, sole financial provider, end quote. The children have speech disabilities and his wife has DACA. And it appears that the same thing happened in this case as the one that we just discussed, which might be why the Eighth Circuit published them back-to-back. One immigration judge heard the case, but then that IJ was unavailable to render an ultimate decision. It appears based on a Google search that the IJ is currently serving as a temporary BIA member. Maybe that's why. Another IJ rendered the decision denying non-LPR cancellation of removal based on a failure to show the required hardship to Mr. Avendano Elvira's children, and counsel alleged that it was a due process violation. The BIA denied, and the Eighth Circuit dismissed the petition for review. In this decision, kind of a companion to the last one, the Eighth Circuit explained further why it was proper for EOIR to substitute IJs. The regulations allow an IJ substitution so long as the new IJ, quote, familiarizes himself or herself with the record and states for the record that he or she has done so, end quote. In this case, the new IJ did just that. The new IJ need not explain how he or she has familiarized himself or herself with the record evidence and need not explain why the former IJ is no longer available, but merely must state that they have done so and that the former IJ is no longer available. Plus, Mr. Avendano Elvira did not argue or show how the new IJ was not fair or impartial, and so no constitutional due process challenge lies. The Eighth Circuit held that it lacked jurisdiction to review the remaining substantive challenges to the cancellation of removal denial, and so dismissed the petition for review. Just one more thing on all three of those cases. The three individuals in the three non-LPR cancellation of removal cases that I just discussed seem like decent enough people, although the first certainly had a bit of a criminal record. All have young U.S. citizen children. By definition, all have been here for over 10 years, and I'm willing to bet that all are hard workers. That individual from the Seventh Circuit went so far as to use a fake social security number for years just to work. It's very possible that on a case-by-case basis, the majority of Americans would believe that these individuals should be allowed to get green cards. But immigration law does not permit case-by-case determinations of such things. To get lawful status, these individuals must convince an IJ that they are one of the very few non-citizens, 4,000 per year, worthy of getting non-LPR cancellation of removal and only if they can meet the very high standard of proving that their removal will cause exceptional and extremely unusual hardship to their, in all three cases, young U.S. citizen children. 
which is a much higher standard than simple separation from their father for the entirety of their youth, as will now likely occur. This wasn't always the case. It's only been the law for 25 years. If you believe that Congress should change the law to give people like this a path to lawful immigration status in the U.S., make it known. And that is Avendano Elvira v. Garland. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet, at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Thank you.